Is Jordan in here? Is Jordan Kimball in here? You see, there he is over there. Thank you, Jordan. In the Air Force Band, produced that, sent it to us and said, uh, if you all want to use this in the service, we said, absolutely, because those are all city lifers that were in there, that were being honored, and uh, yeah, so powerful. I think one of my favorite parts was uh, the close-up on Stan that he had on his bookcase, a figurine of the Hulk, and then a book on the life and music of Johnny Cash. Come on, Stan. If you know Stan, you know that's perfect. Perfect. Uh, the Tatums, are they here? Are Alvin and Carla, they're right here. Come on. They were in there. And Alan Smith, who's in our Suffolk campus, he was uh, in there also. But you all met in weather school, right, for the military? Yes. And so I, I remember talking with them. I think it was Alvin that was telling me that the whole idea of weathermen here stateside for civilian life, you know, they deal in the realm of percentages. And he was like, we didn't have that luxury. The commanding officer would come in and say, is it going to rain tomorrow or not? I just need to know, right? There was no 40% chance, 80% chance, 10% chance. And so we appreciate their work. And it's just a great reminder, right? All the different facets of how people serve in the military, taking the fight to the enemy. And so thank you for all your work and for all your service. So, hey, I got one more thing I want to do before I get into the message tonight. Everybody get a paint stick? Yes. So we are in the month of November. If you were here last week, we're asking you to hold on to this, that you're going to use this as a reminder to pray for what your part is supposed to be for the money that we're raising to begin the painting on the exterior of this building. If you're visiting tonight, you might not know, but this entire property was gifted to us in May. It's an incredible story of God just miraculously moving and entrusting us to care for this building. The church that built it, started it in the 50s, uh, closed their doors this past year and trusted us with it. And so we know God could have given this building to anybody. But he gave it to the City Life Church, and so he's asking us to carry it forward into its future. And so with the money that we've been saving, as we've been praying for a building for the last 10 years or so, we had $81,000 that we had set aside that we could spend on improvements, plus another twenty-five dollars that we have set in reserve, because we want to be able to have that in case there's an emergency. But of the eighty-one we've spent, there's a list there for all the things that we have done uh, that's going to pop up on the screen there. So the all the road signs, all the, the improvements that you've seen inside the parking lot there, you can read that entire list. And so we stretched every dollar to accomplish all of those things. But we know that there needs to be work on the outside too. And so we're estimating with quotes that we got, it's probably going to cost somewhere between twenty dollars and $25,000 to hire a professional painting company to do the parts that we can't reach. I would say 75% of the painting on the exterior, we're going to do that ourselves through sweat equity. We'll, we'll join together through work. Workdays, the other churches uh, that are renting space here. But there's parts that we just can't do safely, like the second story of the sanctuary, the steeple, that we're going to have to bring a company in to do those things. And so we're raising money this month in November, uh, and we're asking you to be a part of it. And we know that if 10 families give each give 1,000, if 10 families each give 500, that's 15,000 that we would have right off the top. And we think another five to $10,000 uh, will get raised as well. So we're giving you this 
this, a little paint stick, just as a reminder to you. Set it somewhere in your house, just where you're going to see it. And when you see it, we're just simply asking you to ask the question, God, what part am I supposed to play? And then if you're giving online, you give it to building fund. If you're writing a check, you give it to building fund. And then if you're giving a, in a cash and an offering, again, you can do that all during the month of November. You can give it on the envelope, put building fund, and then 100% of that money is going to go towards the painting of the exterior of the building. So Father, we just we thank you for the privilege that you've given us to entrust us with the sacredness of this property. We thank you for the privilege that you've given us to be a steward of this sacred soil that belongs to you. And we thank you, God, that you, in your sovereign wisdom, believed that there is still ministry that's supposed to come from 311 Selden Road. That even though the church that started it isn't here anymore, their heart and ministry remains. And we thank you that you've given us the privilege and the honor to see it forward. And we thank you for how you're going to move on people's hearts to help us do just that. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, I lied to you last week. I told you that we were going to pick back up with our series, uh, Why Do Be, which is really an in-depth study of our new mission statement, to build the church Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. But this morning, when I, I got up, our, our, our house was especially quiet because all of our, our teenagers, just like most of yours, are away at a conference. They're, right, This little group that fills these pews over here on the left are all in Richmond. And, uh, and so as I was sitting there this morning just drinking my coffee, and uh, Vanessa was there, and, and we were just enjoying the quietness of the day, I was, my, my reading for, for today and the Bible plan that I'm doing had me in John 11, and as soon as I started reading, I knew that God was writing a message for someone here tonight. I was thinking about it earlier, too. I was like, you know, we, we know that God has a plan, and he knows what he's going to do. And so when as ministry teams and ministry leaders, we're putting plans in place, right? Sometimes moments like this, there's a part of you like, God, if you knew you wanted to talk about this, you, you could have told me a couple of weeks ago. That would have been all right with me, right? And, and, and it's not as though God did not know who was going to be here, right? I think sometimes we talk about it like God changes it up, and I'm guilty of this in my own language, that he changes it up because somebody made a decision to come as if that caught him off guard and he wanted to change it up in the last minute. But he knows the decisions that you're going to make. It might have been a surprise to you that you're here, but it's not a surprise to him. So why does he do it that way? And this is what I felt like the Holy Spirit whispered to me. He changes it up at the last minute because it creates expectation in you. He changes it up at the last minute because when somebody gets up like I am now and talking to you about how just at the last minute there is a shift for what we believe God wants to say, it creates a sense of expectation and it causes you to ask the question, I wonder if this is for me. And I'm trusting that for some of you tonight that God wanted you to hear this story and the things that I believe that God wants me to share. This is out of John 11. I want to read the whole story. It's John 11. It's verses 1 through 44. So we're going to take a big bite. You ready? A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. Now this is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick and so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. And when Jesus heard about it, he said, 
Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Now we know it does, but here Jesus says it won't. Know what happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. And his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you, which means to, right, to throw rocks at him. Actually, stoning wasn't just throwing rocks. Stoning, in the, in the biblical sense, what they would do, they would do it that way with rocks if they didn't have another means. But the, the main way that they would stone, they would take you to a cliff, they would throw you over the cliff, and then they would throw stones down on you once you fell. Disciples said, right, you can appreciate this. See, the disciples... We read this as if their objections are for his safety, but we know these disciples. They're like, if we're with you and they're going to throw you over the cliff, that might be our fate as well. So they said, you know, I don't, I don't think we should, we should go there. And Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day, and during the day people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. We're going to talk about that statement, what it means. But at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go wake him up. This is the disciples coming back. They say, you know, Jesus, if he's just sleeping, he's going to be all right. Because they thought Lazarus was really simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you can really believe. Come, let's go see him. Now Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. We're going to talk about that. I love that moment. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been dead in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. And when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here when my brother, my brother would not have died. But even now, she says, come on, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, yes, he will. Everyone will rise at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and said, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So immediately she went to him. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. We're going to talk about why that is. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man, but, he couldn't, but couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance, rolled the stone aside. Jesus said to them, but Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. But Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Can you imagine? 
And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so they will believe that you sent me. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out. I heard someone preach this text once that he shouted and he used Lazarus' name specifically because if he hadn't, every dead person in that cemetery would have come to life. (laughs) The dead man came out in his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. I want to talk to you about verse 4 to start. It says, when Jesus heard about it, He said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Jesus, there's somebody here tonight, Jesus wants to change your definition of the word final. He wants to change your definition of the word final. We know that Lazarus dies. We know that his sickness ended in death. But Jesus is saying, no, but that's not the end of the story. For some of you here tonight, when you look at your marriage, you might think that you're at the end. It might feel final, and I believe that God wants to say to you that he's got more of the story that he's going to write. It might be that you're here tonight, and, 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 and you've got a business, and you're looking at the situation and the circumstance that you're facing, and it seems final, but I think that God wants to say to you not, tonight that he's not done with you yet. It might be that you look at your children, whether they're little or whether they're grown, and it breaks your heart because they're running from God, and it feels as though when you look at who they are and the life that they're living, it seems final, but God says to you that he's not done with them yet. I know for me in my journey, in my college years, in my early 20s, that I was living a vulgar hedonistic life even though I was raised in a Christian home and I'm glad that my parents knew that God had a different definition for final than maybe what others were telling them. It might be that you're not a business owner but you are an employee and you're in a job situation and there's been a decision that's been made that has negatively affect you and it feels final. And I believe that God wants to say to you that there's more to the story that he's going to write. We're not a church that teaches denial. That's not what I'm talking about tonight. We're not a church that teaches denial. See, denial would be if Mary and Martha were walking around saying that Lazarus wasn't dead even though he was. Denial would be if your marriage is in crisis and you're pretending as though it's not. Denial would be if your child is living a rebellious life and you're pretending that he's the angel of the choir. Denial would be if you're a business owner and you're on the verge of bankruptcy and you're still spending as if you're not in a financial crisis. We're not talking about denial. This idea of God changing your definition of the word final necessitates and requires that you acknowledge the desperation of your situation. God can't do the work that's to come until you're willing to and ready to wrestle with the circumstances that you face. See, Romans 8.28 does not say For all things are going to change for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
What it says is that all things are going to work to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Lazarus still had to die. Lazarus still had to take his last breath. Lazarus still had to, listen, had to lay on his deathbed, knowing that he was one of Jesus' closest friends, knowing all the things that he had seen Jesus do. This is at the end of Jesus' three years of his life. Jesus, by now, has raised people from the dead, walked on water, turned the water into wine, has had command over nature itself, cast out demons from every demon-possessed person that he ministers to, the deaf hear, the lame to walk, the blind to see. Lazarus saw all of that, and most of them were strangers. Lazarus had to wrestle with the feeling of feeling forsaken by the one who had the power to change his situation. Mary and Martha, it's interesting, isn't it? They sent a messenger to Jesus. Right? There's no email. There's no texting. There's no way to communicate instantly. They had to send a person to take a trip, to go on a journey, to find Christ, to tell him that his friend is dying. Now, I think that it's fair to assume that this messenger went back to Mary and Martha and said, I delivered the message. And one day goes by, two days go by. The messenger has had time to come, but Jesus still isn't there. Mary and Martha had to deal and wrestle with the emotions of knowing that Jesus chose not to come because God was trying to teach them something about life with him because he was also writing a story that would one day be recorded so it would be a lesson for us. You see, sometimes the journey that you're walking through isn't just about your journey. It's about the story that's supposed to be told about you to others. It's supposed to be about what others see when they watch you going through it. It's supposed to be about the proclamation of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God in this idea, this truth, that when we face things in this life and in these situations that feel final, that God's trying to teach the world, that that's often when he does his best work. I'm trusting that if you're here tonight and you're facing a desperate situation that you're going to find a sense of permission to be honest with how devastated you are and how disappointed you might be in people and in God. But that after tonight that there's going to be a sentence that follows that prayer in you that there's going to be a sentence that follows the cry of your heart, that there's going to be a confession and a declaration that says, God, I know that what's final here sometimes is just the beginning for you. Verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day, except for daylight saving time. 
during the day that people can walk safely and they can see because they have the light of this world, but at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. What's he talking about here? Jesus is saying, hey, there is going to come a time in just a few days where the light that I am in this world is going to be extinguished. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that in just a few days that my life is going to be given for the sins of the world. And when that happens, the light that I am is going to go away. See, when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, they didn't die physically, but they certainly died spiritually. Because when he created Adam and Eve, the Bible says that he breathed on them and the Holy Spirit lived inside of them. But when they committed their, their, that sin, the Holy Spirit was no longer a part of who they were. The Holy Spirit was in the world, but he wasn't in people. It wasn't until Jesus was born into this world was there someone with a physical body who had the indwelling Spirit of God in them since Adam. And when he died, that went away. And God was saying to these disciples, there is a light in me because of who I am, but when I die, it's going away, but you're going to pick up the charge and the responsibility to live like I've lived because the light's going to come from you. He's trying to help these disciples to understand that they're about to be given a sacred responsibility to be the carriers of the presence of God in a dark world to illuminate and light the way for others to believe. There was darkness at Jesus' death and then in John 20, 22, when it says he breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, it was the first time since Adam and since Jesus that the Holy Spirit came. And then when you get to Acts 2, God fanned that flame and the church was ignited with power. I was reading about this today and I was thinking about when our kids were much younger and we left them at Vanessa's parents' house in Williamsburg while we were going to, out to shop or run some errands and we came back and they were roasting hot dogs over a little fire pit that they had in their driveway and they gave me one of the hot dogs and I ate it and it literally tastes like it had been marinated in kerosene. And I was like, what are you feeding my children? Right? And so I go over and, uh, and I look into the, you know, the little portable uh, fire pit that many of you had, and they had like you know, two starter logs in there. And, 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 I, and I, I, I turned to her parents and said, what, what, what is this? And they said, well, we, we realized we wanted to roast hot dogs with the kids, but we didn't have any wood, but we figured we could just use the starter logs. And I was like, you know the starter logs are saturated with flammable chemicals. That's why they're called starter logs. So you use it to get the fire started, but you're not supposed to cook over that. right? And then I buried them in a shallow grave in their backyard. <laughs> it's like, dear God, what are you doing? When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, God puts something of himself inside of you. It's like a spiritual starter log of, sort, of sorts. Oh, but it's just the beginning. Because there is supposed to be a bonfire of his spirit and his presence 
in your life that burns with such a brightness that it creates an irresistible curiosity in the world around you. You see, in John 20, when he said, receive the Holy Spirit, all of who God was came into them, but it wasn't until Acts 2, where God supernaturally fanned that flame, did the Spirit of God ignite every part of who they were. Jesus here is talking about day and light and darkness and night because he wants them to understand that if they don't burn brightly, this world will remain a dark place. And it's why he came. Matthew 5, 14 and 15 reads this way. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, listen to what it says, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's not so that we'll be seen and we'll be celebrated and we'll be praised. It's so that we'll point people to him. God wants you to be a light in your world. Let's look at verses 8 and 16. 8 and 16. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And then in verse 16, you got to love. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. You know, the disciples, they, they, they get a bad rap. And, and fair enough, right? Because they say some stupid things. They've earned their reputation because sometimes they just don't get it. But I think sometimes because we've been inundated with all the stories of all the times they get it wrong, we miss the times that they get it right. And this is certainly one of them. They knew with certainty that there was a high probability that if they were to go back to this region, that they would all be killed. And yet they all went. Now we know a few days later they scatter, but right, that's who we are as people. We have good days and bad days. But on this day, it was a good day for them. I've got to believe that as Jesus made his way to Bethany and saw that all of them, even Judas, were choosing to go along, that there was a sense of, of righteous pride, of good pride, that welled up in Jesus' hearts, that here they are following me, possibly to their own demise. I love that this is part of the story because I think for most of us, we'll live our lives and we'll never, we'll never have to face a physical death like Christians around the world face every day. That we'll never have to face that. But it doesn't mean that there's not a dying that needs to be done. For many of us, dare I say all of us, that there is a dying on the inside that's standing between where we are and the best life that God created us to live. 
I remember in the summer of 1990 when, when I was really uh, at, the, at the peak of just wrestling with this, this drawing of, of God at work in my life to come back to my roots as a devoted follower of Christ. And I remember my mom at the beginning of that summer gave, gave me a book, and it was by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness. Anybody read that? Remember that book from the, in the early 90s? Then there became a, a series, all of them, great books. Love Frank Peretti as an author. But I remember reading that book, This Present Darkness, that, that summer, and, and, and it was a gift to my life because it reminded me that evil is real, that the devil is real, that God has an enemy that's at work in this world. And God used that book to ask me the question, whose side do you think you're on? He used that book to cause me to wrestle with this idea that in, in, in spirituality, there's no neutrality. It's when Jesus said, if, if, you're, if you're not against me, you're for me. If you're not for me, you're against me. He says it a couple of different ways, a couple of different times, because he wants us to understand you're in either one of two camps. If you're not a devoted follower of Christ, you might not think of your life as being evil, but you're working against God with the devil. And I remember being struck by that thought. And I remember that it was very upsetting to me. I had always thought of myself as taking risks with my own life, but I had never really stopped to think that I was risking the spiritual well-being of others by the choices that I was making. And I remember on that journey that it was sometime probably towards the end of the summer, I've shared this story before, that I was a bartender, I had graduated from college, had a degree in business economics, and I was a bartender at the tobacco company in downtown Richmond. My parents were so proud. But they had a different idea of the word final than the world does. And I remember being there, it was either Friday or Saturday night. It was loud. The band was playing, and, and this, it's just, it was always packed, and, and we're pouring drinks. And even in the midst of all that, I've never heard God's audible voice, but I felt him say to me, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Clear as day. I knew God was asking me this question. Now, I'd been around church long enough to know that if you begin a conversation with God, it's going to last for the rest of your life. So I didn't want to answer that question, so I didn't. But I could not get away from that question. When I would wake up, when I would be going for a walk, I remember parking in the parking deck on, on my way to a shift, not just too many days after, and walking down the sidewalk, and the question coming again. And so, again, it's, it, it, it was, you know, started with this book by Frank Peretti, and now, now, now God is, is, is speaking to me and, and challenging me, and, and, and it prompted me to make a list. I literally made a list of all the things that I knew that I was going to have to change if I became a devoted follower of Christ. And it was a really long list, unfortunately. And I, and I, and I wrestled with this list. It was all folded up, and I would take it out and look at it, and I would mark things off. I could give up this. I could give up that. And, and, and then I would always end up with a few things that I thought I could. I can't imagine my life without these things. I just, I can't, God. And you know what God never did? He never talked to, to me about that list. Not once ever. He never brought up anything on that list. 
He never guided me when I was editing that list. But he did ask me another question. He said, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the conclusion, right, that I came to, I said, okay, God, I I believe that Jesus is your son, the Savior of the world. God said, don't you think you should at least take the time to read what he had to say? God didn't say, let's go back to that list and work on it, because God knew, because this is what God does. He doesn't care about our list. He He cares about the things that we need to change, but he never starts there. He never starts there. He doesn't care about our list. That's why when people come into this church and their lives are all upside down and whacked out, we we don't talk to them about the things that they need to change. We don't start there with people. We start the way God starts. We start by talking to them about Jesus. Because if you get a vision for him, if you get a vision for the life that he's calling you to, can I just tell you the stuff on that list doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't want us to invest all this emotional energy and all these things that we might have to give up because he knows that if we get a vision for the life that he's calling us to, then we're not even going to give a second thought to those things. Because once you see what the true treasure is, all of a sudden, the cheap substitute becomes painfully apparent. Some of you, you have a list. Some of you, you've never made it. But if you did, it would probably be as long as mine. And I think that Jesus wants to say to some of you tonight, a lot of those things have to die. And for some of you, it might be that you haven't been in church for a long time because you know that a lot of those things need to die and it frustrates you that you haven't lost your desire for them yet and you're here tonight because God's trying to say to you, just leave that stuff alone and just begin a journey of falling in love with Jesus. Because when you begin to understand who he is, you begin to understand who you're supposed to be. And when you begin to understand who you're supposed to be, you begin to understand the life that you're called to. And when you begin to understand the life that you're called to, you can't get rid of that stuff fast enough. Because you know it's just weighing you down. If the beginning of my journey as a devoted follower of Christ had been spent trying to figure out how to stop doing all the things that I was supposed to do, I would have been stuck there for decades. Decades. But by picking up this life of falling in love with Jesus, it just displaces all the things that don't belong. There is a dying that some of you need to embrace. But listen to me, it will only come when you begin by embracing the life of Christ. Last one. Verses 33 and 39. All right, 33 through 39. When Jesus saw her weeping 
and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. And the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said this man healed a blind man, but couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry. Angry. See, these stories are so important to retell because they get told in certain ways, especially popular stories like this. And, and, And so often we end up focusing on certain, most of us know, most of us know, where, 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 where's the moment where Jesus wept? And we connect it to the story of Lazarus because most of us, when we were kids, it's the verse that we chose to memorize because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? We understand. But I think many of us forget he didn't just weep out of sorrow, he was also angry. He was mad. Jesus was still angry. He arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance, which will be a part of his story soon. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell is going to be terrible. Jesus' definition of the word final is different from our definition of the word final. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Jesus looked up and to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. And we read this part of the story already. He comes out, raises him to life. It's important that we see that Jesus was both angry and sad. This is important for us. It's important for us because Jesus had a visceral, emotional response to a situation that he already knew was going to happen and an outcome that he already foresaw. Now, most of us, admittedly, right, in life, when we're angry, it's because something happens to us that we weren't expecting, right? And oftentimes, we're sad for the same reason. We have an emotional reaction and a response because we didn't know. And if you've ever been in a situation or circumstance where you did know that something was going to happen or you expected it and you were able to prepare for it, chances are your emotional response was not as severe. You you track it with me? Because you had time to prepare yourself. Don't you love that Jesus knows everything that's going to happen? Don't you love that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God knows everything that's going to happen, yet he emotionally responds as if it catches him off guard? For a lot of people, this is the part that makes it hard for them to embrace the idea of the sovereignty of God and for God being all-knowing because they say, why would he? And the answer is because he loves us that much. Even though he knows everything that's going to happen, his love for us is so great beyond our comprehension. His emotional response to us is as if we had, he had no idea it was coming which means two things, I think, for some of you tonight. For some of you, you have to be open to 
the reality that God is angry at your choices. He is. It doesn't mean that he stopped loving you. It doesn't mean that he's not present in your life. But there is a very real part of God that gets angry when we choose death over life. He's angry, not at Lazarus. He's angry, not at Mary and Martha. He's angry at the devil for the death and destruction that he's unleashed on his creation. Even though he knows he's going to fix it. Even though he knows, he, even though he knows that he's going to conquer him, he's mad in the moment because he sees the suffering that comes from death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And for some of you here tonight, you need to see that God's grace is big enough for every mistake that you've made, but part of that grace of God is a righteous indignation if you're choosing continue, to continue to do things that you know are harming you and harming others. Can he forgive? Yes. Will he forgive? Yes. But is he angry? You better believe he is because he loves you. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're a kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've either been a parent who's been mad at your child for making decisions that they knew better, but it didn't mean that you loved them any less. And if you're a kid, at some point in your life, you did something that made your parents mad, but they didn't love you any less. It's important for us that we understand the anger that we can create in the heart of God for the choices that we're making. Because I believe that there's something in that revelation that helps us to see the brokenness of our own choices. But he isn't just angry. This is what I love about the story. He also weeps. He's also sad. Because in these moments where we're distraught, even the moments where we're distraught because we realize how angry God is with us, he comes and weeps at our side. And he's willing to feel our pain. This idea, this juxtaposition of Jesus being both angry and sad is such a powerful picture of who God is to us when he's trying to call us to a place of repentance. It's such a powerful picture of who God is for us because he is a perfect father in every way. He's angry and he's mad because the choices that we're making, especially if we know better, but at the same time, he's willing to come and sit and cry and weep with us and to feel our sorrow and our pain. For some of you tonight, you need to be willing to see God as angry. But at the same time, you need to see that above all else, his heart breaks for you because he sees the life that's waiting for you. And for some of you, you're like Lazarus. 
not because you're physically sick and physically dying, but because you're spiritually sick and spiritually dying, and you're unlike Lazarus, who was put in a grave against his own choosing. For some of you spiritually, you're walking into the grave instead of choosing the life that he's called you to live. And Jesus is there with you, and he's mad, and Jesus is there with you, and he weeps because he sees the person that he created you to be, and he sees the different choices that you could make, and he sees the life that you could live. He sees the light that you could be to the world that you're in. And for some of you tonight, others may have been looking at you for a long time, thinking that there's no hope for you. And God says, God says, he's just getting started. Because his definition of final is not the same as what the world sees. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and play because I believe that, I know we're off the clock just a little bit, but I believe that there's a moment waiting for some of you that you need to find at this altar whether it's this idea of believing that God can still do something in your situation that might seem desperate, whether or not it's this idea that, that you know that you've not been the light in your world that you're supposed to be, whether or not it's this idea that, 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 that you need to put down your list and, 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 and pick up this cry and this prayer to God to give you a vision for the life that he's called you to, or whether or not, whether or not you're a person that's just been on the run from God for far too long like me, and you need to get a vision tonight of how angry that makes God, but at the same time of how much his heart breaks for you. Or maybe it's something else in the story that we didn't even touch on, but the Holy Spirit showed it to you, and that you got to come get on your knees at this altar and let God talk to you tonight. Let him take you by the hand. Now, let me tell you why I'm talking to you about coming to the altar. This is important. Because part of the story of Lazarus that's so powerful is Jesus at the end when he prays, he says, I'm praying out loud, not God so that you can hear, but because I want the people to hear. There was something that Jesus knew that needed to happen in that moment to make it public so that it would inspire faith in the hearts of people around him. Now, I'm saying that to you as the final capstone to this story because for some of you, you could do the business that you know that you need to do with God where you are. You could. And coming to the altar isn't for you, but it's for somebody else. It's for somebody else who needs to step into that moment it's for somebody else that, that if they stay where they're seated, they're going to stay hiding, but coming down here is going to cause them to put themselves in an environment and in a, in a setting where they're going to hear God more clearly. So for some of you, coming doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with you being an example for the person that's sitting next to you. So they'll have the courage to come. Stand with me. Lazarus, you're going to be one of the people that we look for in heaven one day. Because <laughs> we're going to want to know, what was it like to be dead for four days and then come back to life? But we know for some people here tonight, Father, 
this idea of coming back to life has nothing to do with their physical body. It has to do with the life on the inside. That needs Jesus to hear you call their name and say, come forth. Father, I pray that you would help people to hear you say their name. Calling them out of their despair. Calling them out of their rebellion. Calling them out for some of them of their indifference. Whatever their tomb might be. Calling them out. In Jesus' name. Come on and everybody said together. Amen. There's some people here on the side. If you need someone to pray with you, Vanessa and I are going to be down here at the front. Or if you just need to find a place at the altar, you come.